Welcome to Trainer Talk, the place where negotiation professionals talk shop. My name is Max Bevilacqua. I'm the Chief Negotiation Officer at Max Negotiating, a Harvard Negotiation Project-inspired advisory and training company focusing on the role of technology in contemporary negotiations. Hi, Max. I'm Gwen Krause, and I've been training negotiation and leadership workshops for 25 years around the world in multiple industries and worked with several training firms, including Vantage Partners, Action Design, as well as my own training and coaching company, Polaris Professional Development. Our guest today is Melissa Fortunato. Melissa has been with the Federal Bureau of Investigation for over 20 years. She has been a special agent working undercover, and she's also intimately involved with the crisis negotiation team where she serves as a coordinator. Um, So this means Melissa not only conducts high-profile crisis negotiations, um, but also trains the people who do this. Um, Aside from being an incredibly accomplished and badass lady, she's an incredibly kind and warm person, and we are so lucky to have her today. Melissa, welcome, welcome, welcome to Trainer Talk. Um, Not just because you work for law enforcement, um, but because you're wonderful, I want to do justice to your intro. Um, I'm going to let you talk about your role in the FBI and and how you got there. Um, But I just want to say that having a crisis negotiator from the FBI, um, whom I'm very fond of, on a podcast sounds more like a dream sequence of mine than than my real life. So I'm so excited and humbled and delighted to have you. Um, Welcome. And can you tell us more about yourself? Thank you, Max and Gwen. I'm so excited to be here. Um, My feelings are mutual, obviously, but um, I am very excited to come on. Uh, Like you said, my name is Melissa Fortunato. I am an FBI special agent and also an FBI crisis negotiator. I've been an FBI agent for 20, over 22 years, and for 14 of those years, I've been um, working in conjunction to my special agent duties, also as a crisis hostage negotiator for the FBI. So the FBI has us do a two-week training course. We get trainings um, throughout the time as a negotiator just to keep our skills sharp. Um, but I currently also am the team leader for FBI Cleveland's crisis negotiation team. Incredible. And, and just out of curiosity, Melissa, how did you, how did you decide you wanted to be in the FBI and also what brought you to that, this particular specialty you, you work in now? So that's a really long story that I'll try to shorten (laughs) down. Um, I was, I was not a kid that wanted my whole life to be an FBI agent, um, I was always sure I wanted to be in counseling, Mm. which is where I got my schooling in psychology and I worked in social work prior to becoming an agent. Um, Always fascinated by people, always fascinated by why people do bad things. Um, And it just sort of led me down the path of law enforcement and somebody made connections and it took a life of its own. And here I am 22 years later saying, I can't believe I ended up here. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. But the negotiation, the negotiation part, I think is a very logical fit for my background in psychology. Uh, So when I initially got in the FBI, when I was younger and fearless, 
Um, I did some undercover work and some of those skills are very specific and transferable to negotiation work. Um, I no longer do undercover work, but um, it, it was a very logical transition of people and ingratiating yourself and assessing people, all those things that work for negotiation. And so um, I love it. It's an easier way. I can still be who I actually am in the world. Um, and so that's easier. Yeah. Wonderful. And I'm really excited to explore the many ways in which your background, I think, makes you especially good at what you do and isn't really at odds in any way with, with your role as a negotiator. Um, but, but we're looking forward to, to learning from you. Thank you. Yeah, I know we had talked before and trying to figure out, you know, the best way to help people learn certain negotiation principles and strategies and um, I always believe the most effective way to learn is kind of through a story, through an example. So I think we, me, you, and Gwen had talked about a, a particular case that um, is one of the cases I have worked on, but might be a good way to sort of help explain some of the principles and the techniques that we use in the FBI as hostage negotiators. Wonderful. Um, we're, we're all ears. So the story I thought that would help be a good teaching point is a kidnap for ransom case that my team and I worked on. Um, it's a story of a man who was living in Afghanistan, was originally from our area, uh, still had family back in this area. And he was a 62-year-old man. His name was Al. And he had initially gone to Afghanistan to do missionary work, him and his wife. Um, very much believed in the cause of mission work um, and did it for many years. Part of their mission work was in Afghanistan. They really fell in love with the country and decided to start a business and live there full time. Um, Al spoke the language, wow. was very much assimilated in the culture. Uh, you could tell that he was a U.S. citizen, but he really dressed in the cultural garb and the facial hair and everything to, to blend in and really um, appear yeah. that he was someone that was living there and accepting the culture. He started a business uh, okay. with a business partner of his and they were doing a hydroelectric work in different villages by helping them get electricity and enabling them to just do things easier in their lives. So still very much a servant to people. Um, and that was important to him. They had lived there for probably about eight years, um, so very well familiar with the area, the culture. And it had come up at some point that there was a funeral of someone that they knew, and he wanted to go to the funeral. At the time, he was being told by Afghanis that he was friends with that it wasn't safe for him to go to this area where the funeral was, and they thought that he shouldn't go. Now, Al was very adventurous. Okay. Um, and in some sense, fearless. And he felt that it was important for him to be at the funeral. So he chose to go. So him and his Afghani business partner went to the funeral and on their way back, they were stopped on some roadway and at gunpoint and taken hostage. Yeah. And, uh, he, you know, he describes it as saying they, as they're driving down, you know, the cars came on and people came out of places with guns. And they took him in a vehicle, then they parked a vehicle, and then started to take him up into the mountains. And he was held in a cave in the mountains of Afghanistan for 56 days. And 
during that time, they began to contact his family members demanding a ransom payment for his return. Now, the family was strongly connected to um, a particular religion's uh, mission network. And so they had contacted them initially when the calls were coming in and they had some private negotiators that got involved initially. And the private negotiators were starting to do some of this negotiation and the prices, the demand, ransom demand was so high, it was getting upwards of a million dollars at one point. And at the same time, his Afghani business partner was also being held hostage and they were contacting his family and trying to get payment. So within about a five to seven day period of time, the Afghani partner's family paid a ransom demand that was much lower than what they were asking for Al as an American citizen. And um, so his partner was released within the first week. And so then Al by himself was held captive in a cave, tied up, you know, just given basic bread and water for 56 days. Now, this is a 62-year-old man, not crazy health issues, but at a certain point, nobody wants to be sleeping on rocks for 56 days against your will, being, you know, having your hands sure. and feet bound. So at yeah. some point, the private negotiation was not going well. And they decided to transition to contacting his wife, so Al's wife, Gladys, to demand ransom payments from her. And that's where we were able to become okay. involved at one point. Is, is Gladys in, in the U.S. at this point? So initially she was in Afghanistan and was notified at some point that he was taken hostage. Within a short period of time, which is somewhat standard practice for these missionaries especially, is if that happens, they take the family members and instantly fly them back just to keep them sort of safe. And so she had returned after he was kidnapped to the U.S. And I'm just curious, is there something specific that the private negotiators were not doing well that caused that to break down and them to switch to Gladys? So, you know, Gwen, that's a good question, because I think it was a series of things. Um, we always discuss in kidnap for ransom cases and any really hostage situation, the most dangerous time is in the beginning when they're being taken and held kidnapped in the beginning. And then at the end, whether it's a rescue or a release. And so I don't know if just there's so much excitement at the beginning. And I don't know if different people became involved or a larger group of people involved in the beginning, but as time goes on, much like all of us, emotionally, you can't maintain that heightened level, right? So over time, emotionality sort of balances out. And I don't know if that's why the negotiations seem to go better later, because maybe things calm down, less people involved. Um, in the beginning with the private negotiators, there was a lot of talk of politics and America being in Afghanistan. Um, and we didn't see that show up with Gladys, um, the wife. So some of those things are a little bit different. Um, even the hostage takers to the private negotiators were kind of calling them out on what they thought they were doing negotiation techniques. I mean, clearly all these people are private, um, are professional hostage takers. 
I don't know really what happened. Obviously, it's always relationship building and making sure you're listening properly. And I think in translation, some things were lost. And initially, they were asking for a million dollars, and the negotiators were coming in at like 40,000. And it was just so far off, I think. I'm guessing, but I imagine the hostage takers were thinking they were not be taken seriously. And that's just as a, as a first concept to, to start on, I'm so interested given, number one, you have an American in Afghanistan with that history. Um, you have a Mennonite missionary um, taken, do I have it right that, was it the Taliban that, that, that took out? You are correct. So we have this religious dimension and then your first number needs to be sufficiently high that it doesn't insult someone. But also, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm curious what you were going up against, how you were thinking about all these different dimensions of identity and also how you are dealing with the family as well, which sounds like a whole series of negotiations as well. Yes, there, there was and there typically always is a lot of moving parts in a kidnapper ransom case. Obviously, like you mentioned, you have just the family that we're dealing with and everybody has a different opinion of what the best way is to move forward. So trying to negotiate feelings, I mean, this is a major crisis event for this family. Um, and this particular case had a slightly unique twist to it that instead of the hostage takers contacting Gladys, which they did initially, but very quickly they realized she did not speak the language that they spoke, so they could not communicate. So they end up putting Al himself on the phone to negotiate his own ransom payment with his wife. Oh my God. Wow. Oh. So if you can imagine that dynamic. Oh my God. Well, what? For both of them, right? There's a lot going on for both of them. Yeah, what, what was that like from your perspective watching that? So it's so interesting because when you, um, we record all of our negotiation, the phone calls. So um, when I even just this morning was going back to listen to them again, you can just hear moments of frustration on his end because obviously he's now being held for 20, 30, 40 days, you know, and he's getting tired. Um, He's not being treated well. And um, at different times, there are threats to his life, to cut off his head, to cut off his hand. Um, he's trying to negotiate for himself to them because he's aware of the finances that they have and how much they can or cannot pay. So at a certain point, a very specific number was coming up that was much more realistic than the million dollars. And we were trying to assess is that a number he's like told them that they have or not? And can we still try to lessen that amount? Or is there no lessening that amount because he's told them, I know I have this much money in the bank, pay it now. And you can hear his conversations with her where he says at one point, I've tried to do what I can, that part's not working, just pay the money. Things have started to go downhill, it's not looking good, pay the money. So he's becoming a little frustrated with her that it's taking a while. And she's hearing that on the other end and trying her best to stall out time to try to understand everything that's going on. She's trying to learn how would I even do this if we were going to pay the ransom. 
And then you can just hear her hearing her husband saying, you know, well, they're tying my hands at night and my feet and I'm sleeping on rocks and they barely feed me. And it just was very hard for her um, to absorb that as the spouse, but still to be the strong family face that's doing this negotiation. I mean, what an amazingly strong and just sort of her fortitude that she had to be able to take that all on, even with her own emotions. And I think that you told us before, you know, obviously this is multi-party and there are different interests. At this point, Al's interests are just pay the money and get me out. But the FBI had a very different set of interests. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, how what your strategy was and how you were convincing Gladys um, to to listen to your strategy and be influenced by how you wanted to conduct this negotiation? Sure. So it's we always give the family options and we try to, and I think it's wise in any negotiation to gather as much information as you can, under, try to understand everything that's going on. We really try to listen to all parties involved. So obviously we have Al's position as the one being held hostage, but there was the Gladys's position as the wife, his children were there, um, his family members, you know, um, not immediate family, but his immediate family, brothers and sisters having opinions on that. But our job is to come in and bring our experience to the table and to really work as a coach with them and explain everything. So we may get to a point that you pay the ransom, but we wanted them to understand all the permutations of how that could go. Now we were speaking to Al directly on the phone. So we were aware that he was alive and you know sometimes in certain kidnap for ransom cases you may not be communicating with the hostage and so you don't even know if they're alive but we did have proof of his life so that was one thing then you sort of move to well if we pay it how does this go you know do i give you the money and then he's released is it at the same time and so sometimes there's been cases and we try to explain to the family based on our history and all these cases that we've been involved in that sometimes you could pay the money and they don't get released or they get killed. And so you have to sort of weigh those options and giving them the ability to make decisions as it goes along. And at the same time, as we're doing all of this, we're also trying to figure out if there's a way that we could rescue him and figure out where he was and at different points, we were gathering more and more intelligence based on his calls and some of the information he himself was able to give up that was helping us sort of narrow down where he was. So in the background, outside of us coaching Gladys to be on the phone and managing all the questions and uh, issues that would come up on each phone call and be properly prepared, um, we were in the background then trying to negotiate with our partners overseas between FBI people, military, and everybody. Um, is there a way that we could rescue him ultimately? And so it, there's a lot of parts and the family is mostly involved in all of that. So the family was aware that we were trying to see if we could figure out where he was and try to figure out a way to get him safely rescued. Um, and so they always had that in the back of their mind too. So as much as you're stalling for time to gather more information, to understand how, if you're going to pay the ransom payment, how that looks and the proper way to do it, that there's no miscommunication, there's no misunderstanding, 
um, then we have this other thing that's also coming in every now and then. And there's so many aspects of this kidnapper ransom case that are, I think, atypical. Um, one being that the hostage is also his own negotiator. And I would think that the language gap between Gladys, the wife, um, and his hostage taker's language presents some problems. I'm wondering if his ho the hostage taker's inability to understand what he was saying in certain moments in English, if that was the case, was he able to give you any clues or to do any, you know, under the breath negotiating as well? He was absolutely, which was great. There were moments because the hostage takers that were guarding him did not speak English. Okay. And um, so he and Gladys could communicate in English and she would sometimes ask yes or no questions and he would ask them. Mm -hmm. And so they were able to determine, he could even tell them at some point, you know, I was at one time I was near where my motorcycle was taken and she knew where that was from their history. Or, you know, do you see a river? Do you see a castle? Do you see a this? Do you see that as ways to help narrow down where we thought that he was? So yes, he did do that. That's what was interesting that at some point she was trying to ask more of those questions. And that's where you hear him say to her, enough, we've tried that, it doesn't work, play the money. And so that was very hard for her to hear because she was really trying to do everything right. And just think of that dynamic. I mean, for anybody that's married and finances and communication between you and your spouse. Yeah, yeah. You know, everybody gets frustrated with their partners sometimes, right? And imagine being held hostage and you can't get your wife to just do what you want her to do. And he's maybe not fully understanding, although he was smart enough to know there's something going on with the questions. So he, I think he did know, but... He was trying to just use his own influence campaign on her to get her to just do what he wanted to do. Did he ever know for sure that the FBI was coaching her? At the time, obviously not. But he later, when he came back, we interviewed him. Um, and so, yes, at that point, then he was fully aware. Um, like I said before, I think you, he knew something was going on by him saying, I've tried that. It's not working pay the money. Mm -hmm. To me, I read that as he understood what she was trying to do, but he wanted to be done with that. And so I'm just wondering in terms of the words you say to Gladys in the moment, how do you coach someone? What advice are you giving this person who is hearing that um, their husband is, you know, asking for help at this point? In terms of us talking to Gladys, it, it really did depend on the day. She is an amazingly strong, faithful woman. So she always went back to her faith. Um, and I think that helped her stay focused. But she really was able to do it. You could tell her what you needed to do and why we wanted her to do it. And she understood the concept behind it and why it was important. And that just was our job is to get her buy-in, to get her to believe it to understand why there was a purpose to it. And we're not just stalling time to stall time. There's a lot of reasons you stall for time. Some of it's the emotional part. Um, some of it is the investigative intelligence gathering, but some of it is, it's just realistic in life. It just takes a long time to do some of these things, especially if you're gonna pay a ransom payment to send it overseas. 
So we would spend time telling her, well, even if we do pay it, there's this issue and this issue and this takes time and there's days that are built into wiring money and getting someone to take it out and bringing it to somebody. So we're just really trying to get her buy-in as much as we can so she fully understood. But she was so really easy to work with because she did trust us. Um, I think we tried to spend a lot of time respecting her, her boundaries of this house, um, the situation that she was in. And I think that led to her feeling that she could trust us, understood that we had the background and the history to support what we were saying based on our prior work on these types of cases. And I think that all led to her um, trusting us and us developing a strong relationship with her. And I'm curious what, if any, side negotiations are happening, given um, a potential culture difference between Mennonites in Ohio and the FBI in terms of the strategies you're pursuing um, and and life and limb. Yes. So that was an issue that did come up at some point. Uh, in the religion, they're very much against violence. And so there were some concerns, even as an FBI as an organization and us being armed, um, you know, we didn't want to come in with our guns out and just be this strong sort of dominant presence that would not have been effective in that situation and, and was not necessary in that situation. There was no danger or anything that. So we were really trying to establish um, a strong working relationship with her. So we tried to keep that very quiet and subtle and not focus on that part for her. She didn't need our strength in this situation with the guns, I should say. Um, and also when we discussed a possible rescue by the military, they obviously were concerned about if Al could be injured in the rescue, but they were also worried about the hostage takers being injured or killed. Wow. And so it gave them pause to agree to have us pursue that as an option. I think for some people that's hard to understand, but the way they described it based on their faith, it very much made sense. And it was just something that we had to work with and get them comfortable with that decision, which ultimately they did decide that they were willing to engage and, and have that be an option on the table if it was possible. It sounds like the, the hostage takers have most of the leverage in this situation. Um, because they they have Al. So it, it, could you say a little bit more about, you know, relationship building? You're obviously building relationship with Gladys. Um, you're not speaking directly to the hostage takers. Are you coaching Al in in how to play back what's being said, how, how he can up his negotiation skills on his end? Uh, that's a very interesting question. And, and yes, in a way that it does work out that way, because at times we're telling her, you know, try to keep him on the phone longer. Um, also to explain to him, we have to get the money and it takes X amount of days because this is the process. And she would be saying, tell them, Al, you know, don't let time get in the way. We want to get you your money, but we have to do X, Y, and Z. And so we need X amount of days. And then he would be translating that to the hostage takers. And at times there were pushback, absolutely. They would come and put a deadline on and say, no, you have to have it done in three days. And her response back to that, which at the time was true, was, 
well, it is a weekend and you need to explain to them that our banks are not open on the weekend. And so I need at least two days before I can get to the bank and start having these conversations. So she herself was doing a lot of that very naturally, but mirroring back what we were saying and repeating back the things that we were talking to her about when the calls were not going on. So you're now into day 46, 47, into day 50. You know, it, it there seems to be a bit of a stalemate. I would assume the hostage takers are getting really antsy to get their money. Um, what's going on at that point? Yes, I mean, you have to figure for them, uh, we were assuming that Al was not the only hostage that they were having to guard and feed and have negotiations on that on their behalf. So they could be doing this with six, 17, 25 other people. And it does, it's a business to them. It does become a manpower issue. Um, so it is a lot. And you had mentioned saying that the hostage takers have the leverage. Yes, they do. Um, but we do too, mm -hmm. because they want money. And so we try to not lose perspective of saying that we have no power in this situation. We do have power, right? Um, you want our money and we want Al. And so we have to work together as a team. You need me as much as I need you. And so we always try to articulate this teamwork. We're trying to get you what you want, but we need Al and we need him to call us and check in so we know that he's still alive. Because there's always these other factors of there's a war going on in Afghanistan and God forbid a bomb is dropped somewhere. You know, he could be killed just not by the hostage takers in that moment. So, but you are right, Gwen, there was like a crescendo kind of building to this point of this has been a while now um, and there was no more stalling on the money. We had a clearly an established amount determined by the hostage himself and um, we couldn't, we were moving towards paying that. Thankfully in the background at the same time, they were gathering more intelligence and factoring, um, were able to narrow in where he was located. So at the time that we were having more consistent conversations about the money actually being wired over to Afghanistan, the military was able to do a rescue of Al in a cave in the middle of the night, um, which is an amazing story. Um, these people were, you know, just fearless themselves and going in and um, were able to rescue Al and bring him back home to his families after 56 days in captivity. Wow. Oh my God. So no money paid on that one and a safe rescue. So that is ultimately a win. And I'm just curious, how did, what was the sequence of the communications you got? Like in terms of from when it happened, did you know it was when it was happening? Uh, what it, what did, um, how did you find out about the outcome? So it's just strangely enough, um, people on our team were on the phone at the moment and were talking to Al and could hear some things going on. And then all of a sudden the call kind of, the call didn't drop, but like the phone dropped. And then a military person picked up the phone and said, this is who we are and he's safe. We'll bring him home. Wow. And so, but there was a moment for Gladys, especially yeah. where you think you're communicating and planning this all out. And then all of a sudden we hear nothing. They had an idea that things could be happening, but you don't know specifically in the moment. And so 
you know, it, I'm sure that few minutes felt like hours to her until she heard somebody say, we have him and he's safe. So, which was amazing. That's incredible. So he comes home. My question is, of, of all the information that you learned of what it was like on, on his end um, that you didn't know at the time, what most stuck, sticks out to you or stuck out to you? So it was fascinating. We were able to sit down with him and Gladys and interview him when he came back. Um, and what a fascinating story. And to be able to then talk to him and hear how he was perceiving the negotiations on his side and just the other factors that were going on for him that we didn't even know about. So he told this interesting story um, of actually at one point getting into a tussle with one of the guards that were guarding him. And he said they were fighting. And he said in the moment, the guy pulled out a gun and was pointing it at him. And he said, I knew in that moment when he didn't kill me that he didn't have the authority to kill me. And so, you know, I don't know how as a hostage, you sort of absorb that and how that helps you in the moment. You know, he knew he was a business. He knew there was a price. And so there's a value to him to keeping him alive. So interesting part of the story. I don't want to rush ahead, but um, he was back and reunited with his family and everybody else, obviously. Within six months of his return, he made a decision to go back to Afghanistan. No, Al. And, and he said, um, I had read something with Gladys that he had said he loved the country. He loved the people. And he really believed that God was calling him to go back. And he said, for the other people that live in Afghanistan, such as his business partner, who was kidnapped with him, he can't run to the United States and be safe. And he didn't think it was fair that he took advantage of the ability to go somewhere else where it's safe and not a war zone. So he felt a draw and a pull to go back. So he did go back and got back into business again. Um, Gladys herself said she could not go back um, for a couple years, but she ended up about two years later going back and joining him again. And then unfortunately in 2012, um, he, as he was driving around again in Afghanistan, um, his car was taken over by gunmen and he was murdered. And so a very sad ending after this amazing rescue story. But my hope is that he felt that was where he was supposed to be and that he was doing what God was calling him to do. And I think there's a peace in that if that's how your life turns out. So. And there's there's so much i mean that's so heavy to hear and we had an interesting discussion at one point of um taking perspective because i think my first reaction when i first heard of this story was what how how could that person do that right they had the the great um so much so much resources so many resources poured into um getting them out to go back feels it felt like a waste when i first heard that um, but then there, there are other perspectives in terms of people's interests. And I, I think that's a really interesting discussion. I don't know how you how you hear that, Gwen. Yeah, we did have an interesting conversation about that. Of The knee jerk reaction is, uh, you know, how could you go back after everything that had happened? But 
I think it's a, an essential skill that we're talking about in negotiation is really understanding the perspective of somebody, even if it's not, you, you know, in a million years, your perspective. Um, and I'm, I'm really fascinated, Melissa, by hearing that your background was in social work and counseling. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm curious as to, it may seem obvious to some, but to have you talk about how did those skills that you learned and that training that you had in social work and counseling inform you as a crisis negotiator? Obviously, my background is very applicable to being a negotiator because a lot of what we do is crisis. It's crisis intervention, um, and it's really talking to people and, and trying to get them into a sort of calmer, more rational state, no matter what the situation. And I think the point that you made, when, which was Max was saying, is people's initial reaction to Al going back is some people are really angry about it. And I do understand that. There's a lot of work there was a lot of people's lives that were risked to go over and save him. So I understand that. I do also understand how Al ultimately came to that decision, knowing who he was and how he lived his life. I mean, he traveled all over the world. Um, I don't know that he would have been settled just staying here in the United States. And I think he very much felt a heart pull um, and a draw to go. And I think like you're right, Gwen, that we can't be judgmental about that. We just need to understand the perspective. And so when I look at it from that perspective, then it makes sense to me why he went back. I may not make that choice, um, but it's not my life. And ultimately he and Gladys and the rest of his family needed to be comfortable with that decision. Um, his children felt differently about what we were doing when we did work with the family at that point. And I understood that too. I mean, they could have cut us out completely and just tried their best to pay the money in a certain way and roll the dice and see what happens. So there are a lot of ways to do things. And um, I think as a counselor or psychologist or whatever, you have a bit of background to just try to take on the perspective of the person that you're talking to, um, whoever that is in this situation and trying to get them to their level of comfort with the situation. So we did do that a lot between the family and Gladys. And it changed in the moment because there's a lot of highs and lows in a 56 day kidnapping. So um, some days you would come in and people would be lower. Some days you come in and they would be okay and you could get right to work. So it just, you didn't always know what you were getting into when you walked in. You know, you've been referring to we, and there's obviously a team on your side. Correct. Um, could you give us a little insight into how many people are on this team? Who goes in every day to Gladys's house? How do you guys work together? So obviously a 56 day kidnapping cannot be done by one person alone, um, which is true for many negotiations, right? It's always teamwork. It's always uh, different perspectives being brought in, different skills of the different people on your team. So. At that time, I don't remember exactly how many people were in our team, but we would try to break it down into teams of two um, to limit the amount of people overtaking their home. Um, but um, we would also have it where um, there was always one of us to do one thing and another one to run off and use the phone and all those kind of things. So um, we always had two of us. Sometimes we could plan out when the calls were coming. And so we knew to be there on a Wednesday at a certain time but other times we weren't sure when they were gonna call again. And so you just had to kind of be there and wait and hope that the phone call was gonna come in. So you're essentially 
hanging out at their house sometimes just waiting for calls. Yes, which is hard because you're making a lot of small talk that they don't necessarily want to make in a moment where all your thoughts are just about worrying about your loved one. But you have strangers basically in your home for hours on end. And so it was such an interesting dynamic of trying to not be too in the way, um, but having to be there because they needed us to be there if a call came in at that moment. So we're hearing a lot of a lot of things that I think people might not expect when they hear of the FBI. Um, you're talking about small talk. Um, you're talking about reassuring people and empathy. You're talking about your background in social work. And I think the public image to the American public of the FBI is guns, um, interrogation, that type of thing. And I, I'm, I'm holding those, what I'm hearing from you and also kind of what I think the impression is. And I'm curious what you think about that. Yes. I mean, there are people have beliefs about what the FBI or FBI agents are. Um, and at times you may use those in certain investigations in certain situations that you find yourself in. Negotiations typically is not the time that you're going to bring the full strength and power of the image of the FBI of elusive. I only ask the questions. Um, I'm in control. I, you know, I bring a certain authority and power to the situation. Now, in certain negotiations, that may work. If somebody wanted to negotiate some political issue, then maybe you want to bring the full power of the government to it. But many times, it's really, um, you know, a, a person that's fearful of being arrested and losing their liberty and are in crisis. And we're really just trying to do crisis intervention in that moment. And so I should be bringing more of my humanness to the table than I should be bringing my power and authority. But in any negotiation, you do want to take advantage of everything that's around you and available to you. So if my authority and my position and my power brings something that's a positive and helpful to resolve a situation, I would absolutely discuss that and use that. Um, but if that brought a hindrance, I'm going to try to play that down as much as I can. Um, in this situation, there was nothing about us as FBI agents that brought a positive to that situation. So really, we're coming in as a coach to Gladys to help her at the worst moment of her life with the person she loves the most in the world. And so she needs us to be much more human and understanding and bringing the history and our knowledge as FBI agents and being involved in these situations much more than she ever had, obviously. But that's where we bring our experience to the table because for her, it's a personal, she only cares about one kidnap for ransom case, but we have all the people behind us, you know, my, all my experiences, but the whole FBI's experience on kidnap for ransom cases to establish patterns and to say, I've seen it go this way, this way, and this way. So let's be prepared for all avenues that this could go and let's talk them through. And that's where I think we work really well as coaches in those situations on the kidnap for ransom case. But it, it's, it's not a power play, it's not control, and it's not dominance. And many times in negotiations, it's not about that. It's about relationship building. It's about rapport and influence because we're trying to change a behavior.
And Melissa, you not only conduct these negotiations, but you, you teach other negotiators. And it's it's really affirming to hear you say these things because we think FBI, like badass, hardcore negotiators, and to have that emphasis on empathy and rapport building and, and knowing at the end of the day you're dealing with a human, I, I think it's such a great takeaway. Um, and I'm curious, um, not knowing about FBI culture, um, but again, from the public perspective, um, I, I'm, I'm, and even in just in the negotiation industry, I, it seems to me that there is uh, a bias um, towards men talking about emotions. It's okay if a, if a man does it so long as they're holding a gun as well, because you know that they also have the hard side, right? Um, how how do you, how does that how does that land on you? And or what would you want to correct about the way the FBI thinks about negotiation for the public? Um. I think you are correct. I think we're all human beings, but as we're socialized, you know, as little boys or little girls, you know, you are socialized in different ways. And so for a lot of female negotiators, the feeling part of it, the listening part of it is easier. Um, I do think men sometimes are socialized to much more sort of take control, take the lead. And so sometimes the lead part can be a little bit of a challenge. But I do think the FBI, I mean, I've been through all of our trainings, I've, and I have trained hundreds of law enforcement officers, both in this country and internationally. Um, so there are cultural things that come up. But most people that are drawn towards negotiations have that innate ability to want to really learn about people and are curious about people and have the empathy. That is the biggest thing that we are trying to teach. And I think people are learning it shows up not even in negotiators, but to be effective FBI agents and to interview people and do interrogations. It, it's so much better if I can make a connection to you and, and have you feel comfortable to share things that you have shame about or, or not, you know. Um, and so we're trying to, to use all those things, just not even as negotiators, but as FBI agents. And I, I think people are getting that much more, even in law enforcement in general which is wonderful. You had said something to us on the, on one of our preparation calls in terms of training people to do this, um, that your hope is that it, it sort of becomes in people's DNA, that it can't come off as a tactic or a manipulation. Um, can you say more about that? Yes. So for me, I, I, you know, I read the books, I follow different people and I, I think you can learn negotiation techniques. And you can learn these principles of influence and you could read a thousand books and you could spit back all the buzzwords. But to me, to be a truly effective negotiator, you know, a, a truly an influencer, not in the social media sense, but someone that can influence someone's behavior, you have to have this at a cellular level. It, it has to be in your bones that you understand what the techniques are trying to do it's not manipulation. It's just really understanding human beings and how people respond to certain things in certain ways and, and using that. Um, and I don't mean that in a sense of manipulation. I mean that in just knowing for us in these crisis situations, you could have a room full of kids held hostage. There's a reason for that. And I'm just so curious about the human side of that and understanding how they got to that place. And that's why I think the ultimate, the best negotiators are the ones that have a curiosity 
and a fascination with people and wanting to connect to people and wanting to develop relationships um, more so because it's so much more effective. I could manipulate you, but I don't want you to leave a situation feeling that I manipulated you or I flipped some psychological trick on you and you walk away feeling worse, especially for us in law enforcement because we see a lot of repeat offenders so I want you as best as we can have a good experience together because I don't want to see you again and again. But if I do see you again, at least I left you in a good place. That for us professionally and just as human beings is where we need to be, that we're leaving people with a positive impression of law enforcement. So we don't keep seeing them. Yeah. And I love thinking about influence as a process of several engagements and interactions over time, instead of one dramatic one-liner that changes everyone's perspective like a dramatic event, which at least in my experience is not how this works. Um, Gwen, what are you thinking of this own, having heard all of, all of this and this incredible story? Well, I, I, a, the story is incredible and it's it's such a, an interesting, um, sightline into what goes on behind the scenes, you know, and that you, you weren't able to be on the phone being the negotiator that, that it really was training Gladys and Al. Um, and you know, that you, you train other law enforcement, uh, to do this. And I, at least for me, one of the big things that I learned here was I had this, um, misapprehend, mis, misjudgment that law enforcement often was trying to just do it from a, a, a face of power um, and that it it really is what we teach as well, which is relationship building and empathy and listening and options and um, doing this over time. And um, I really appreciate you sharing this story with us. It's just I've, I've learned a great deal. What about you, Max? I am just very grateful that Melissa, you exist and that you exist within the FBI um, where you have the experience and the credibility um, that many of us as trainers will will never see or have. And I think idolize in a lot of ways and for a person in that position to say, and the thing you need to do is not manipulate people. It's to build genuine human connection and to actually see a person as another three dimensional human being or else if you're not living and breathing it things are going to leak out in your tone or they're going to feel manipulated or Gwen, as I think we say to, to other trainers, don't tool me, right? I'm not looking to be tooled with things. I want you to be genuine. Um, and people, people have a pretty good ear yeah. for, um, for people who are, who are genuine or not. So I just think it's such an important message. Um, I I'm incredibly inspired hearing you say these things and I'm just very grateful that, that you're for your ability to amplify this message to other negotiators, whether in the FBI or outside of it. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing your story and for being on our podcast, Melissa. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you. I love this topic and I know you two both feel the same way. So it's so fun to get with like-minded people and discuss it. So thank you. What an amazing story. I, I was on the edge of my seat at every moment and how the FBI was able to establish trust, not only with the family, but with the hostage takers, because we've got two parties, two major parties 
who it's not even that they don't trust each other, they're, they're actually suspicious of each other and have a history of violence with each other. There, there's so much in, in great negotiation stories that is counterintuitive to me. Like for instance, I, I'm having trouble getting over the fact that the, the hostage themselves is one of the, the and, and his family were one of the limiting factors um, to the FBI in terms of him caring about the preservation of his captors. Um, and so I'm, I'm just thinking here, you have the family, um, which itself is a multi-party negotiation. You have the FBI, you have who the FBI is interfacing with on the ground there in Afghanistan. You have so many people and, and sometimes when we approach negotiation, we can let our perceptions write the story, like write the narrative as we think it's gonna play out based on history. Um, but we really need to, to think about and stop and ask what people's interests and incentives are and sometimes they're incredibly unexpected. And how in a life or death situation do you balance contradictory interests of wanting him released but not wanting the captors harmed? Uh, yeah, and whose choice is that? Yeah, yes, in the end, who whose choice is what the options that go on the table? Yeah. There's also a real improvisatory um, sense to this because as, as, the, as the FBI, you never know what direction this is going to go in. And I think every day they walked in having to have a, an open mind about where this was headed. Yeah. It's, it's weird and beautiful to say this, but FBI hostage negotiation feels a lot like more like jazz than I would have expected. Um, from the FBI. Um, it was interesting too that the FBI was going to their house every single day and were cognizant of their presence as as being there to be helpful obviously and being there to, to make this happen but how invasive that also was and the the deep relationship that they began to form with the family it's one thing to be negotiating across a boardroom table but to be in someone's home in a life or death situation um, and disagreeing over strategy or disagreeing over options and working that through. Yeah, and being mindful of, of power asymmetries even when you're on the same side, right? The FBI has institutional power, the FBI agents are walking in with weapons. Um, I'm always curious how those things factor into a negotiation. I know in mediations, you know, one side has a lawyer, um, the perception of power can change outcomes. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just so fascinating and helpful, I think, to see that one of the most important skills an FBI agent could have in, in this situation um, was the ability to foster personal relationship and understanding and have curiosity, which again is not what I would expect from the FBI. Yeah, I was really struck with how much curiosity and empathy came into play for the FBI in being successful in this. And it's, it, it is not our normal view or perception of that institution. And just to add one, I feel like it's, it's a less marketable, it's a less marketable presentation for anyone in our space, right? That it's much easier, I think, to say, I'm number one, I bested these people, you know, and, and talk about the financial components of things it's much less sexy to talk about these things. And I think that is half the problem, at least from my perspective. Problem in terms of the perception of institutions like the FBI or hostage negotiation? I think perceptions 
of what it takes or what it means to be a strong negotiator. Mm-hmm. That strong necessarily means obstinate, um, unwilling, unfeeling, not curious. And and I think you know the, the greatest contribution of, of Roger Fisher, from my perspective, is you know, be hard on the problem and soft on the people. You do not have to choose between being an FBI that has incredible firepower and an FBI that is curious and empathetic. Thank you for listening to Trainer Talk. We're very excited about our next episode where we talk to Dr. Joshua Weiss, who is a negotiation and conflict resolution expert, a senior fellow at the Harvard Negotiation Project, and the co-founder of the Global Negotiation Initiative at Harvard University. Dr. Weiss is also the director of the MS in Leadership and Negotiation at Baypath University, and is going to talk to us about his recently published book. You've been listening to Trainer Talk. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again. And until next time, happy negotiating.